Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The FT. Beer, burritos, and baristas. You can back all sorts of up-and-coming businesses via the mini-bonds market, but is this form of investing too spicy for your average investor? Plus, we analysed the fast-growing pensions drawdown market, which has taken off following April's pensions freedoms, and a trip to the hairdressers inspires me to ask, is there any such thing as a defensive share? Welcome to the FT Money Show, the FT's most popular weekly podcast. I'm Claire Barrett and I'll be giving you all the week's money news in downloadable form with the help of my FT colleagues Judith Evans, Joe Cumbo and our special studio guest, adventurous investor David Stevenson, the FT Money columnist. Mini bonds have exploded onto the retail investment scene in recent years, with a rising number of businesses, be they burrito makers to beer brewers, tapping the market for cash. Scottish brewer Brewdog launched a £6 million mini bond just last week, but what should investors make of this? I'm joined in the FT studio by David Stevenson, our adventurous investor, and also by Judith Evans, FT Money reporter who's written extensively about mini bonds in the past. David and Judith, thanks for joining us today. Firstly, Explain to us, what is a mini bond and what are the two things you say in your column investors should consider before buying one? Bonds are very straightforward IOUs. And then you have retail bonds, which most people don't understand. They're traded in the stock market. They're, uh, they're usually um, transferable. You can invest in them. You can tra- trade in them Big very companies use them. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And smaller companies who use them as well, the retail bond market. And charities use them. That's one of the most interesting bits of the market. Mini bonds, by default, tend to be non-transferable. Um, so effectively, what that means is that when you buy it, you have to hold it through to maturity. So there's no secondary market. You can't ring a stockbroker up and go, hi, I'd like to sell my retail You can't bond. get out of it. No, you can't get out of it. You have to hold it through to maturity. And that's suppose the other big risk as well is is that uh, a lot of uh, uh, retail bonds, for instance, are quite often secured. And they're usually fairly senior. Not always. And what we mean by that is both security, they've got an asset back against them. So a classic example is there was a charity bond done by uh, on the retail stock market, which is a local charity near to me. And it was secured on the local properties actually in their case assisted care properties and it was relatively senior which meant that there wasn't a lot of debt above it yeah mm-hmm. the problem with a lot of mini bonds is, is they're quite often not senior okay so there's stuff sitting above them uh, and they're quite often unsecured so you don't have any assets that you secure them on that's not always the case but that usually is the case so they are subordinated um, they are a higher risk um, and I suppose that the core of it as well is is that they're non-transferable. That's the thing that gets me, because at, at the end of the day, if you don't like a bond on, on a stock market, you can just sell it, and you can just crystallise the loss and you can get out. So, so the things you have to watch out for, there are specific risks in mini bonds as well. Um, one of the, 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 the two big specific risks I suppose I'd, I'd be looking at is, uh, one, will you get your money back? 
Because if they're that's non- the obvious one, because <laughs> yeah, if they're non-transferable, you have to wait around to maturity. That's a big, big factor. That is, um, and uh, that's a that's a you know that's an important question in the mini bond market because as you quite rightly said in the introduction, they tend to be backing earlier stage businesses. You know, you're backing mm. much much younger companies than the bigger companies on the it's retail almost bond venture market. capitalism for yeah uh, yeah. Well, it's almost venture capitalism, but without venture capital returns, isn't it? Really? Well, this is the second thing that you yeah uh, because then the second. So, will you get your money back? Uh, are you being adequately rewarded for the risk um now what is the risk here there is the risk of not being paid back but there are other risks as well what happens if interest rates go up um there's uh what happens if there are systematic risks in the business um there's a duration risk so uh, a bond i'm sure we could talk a bit about um to the to the brewdog bond it's a four-year uh a, a mini bond yeah now four years is a long time in a business okay so do i think for instance that it will go bust next year this year no i don't, don't think it will i think it's adequately funded in equity well certainly their beers very nice yeah it's a fantastic it's a it's a great brand um four years is a long time for a business particularly where i keep going back to it's non-transferable so you have to be sure that you're that duration of four years you're happy with the interest rate risk and the default risk and i suppose my question is are you being adequately rewarded and i i mean i've looked at two bonds in in the piece one is um from an outfit called walker who do short-term funding and they did it on the thing called the uk bonds network and another one from Brewdog, who do fantastic beers. Um, and that's been put on the Crowdcube network. And I think the chances of default on either are very low. Uh, not not impossible, but very low. Uh, but do I think you're being adequately rewarded for the risk that you're taking in terms of the maturity, the length of time? I think of the Brewdog one, probably not. So with the interest rates, this is obviously what's attracting investors they're really tempting yeah. you know sometimes as high as 10 percent on mini bonds but it can't be a coincidence that so many raises have been from consumer brands not just brew dog but there's also been chilango which is a, a, mm. a burrito mexican burrito restaurant and there's um also chains of um, coffee um, it's a river cottage they're, they're all brands that we know and love as mm. consumers and it's then a small leap in the mind to think oh should i should i invest in something that i like eating or drinking yes yeah, so i suppose the cynical observer in me would say well that is the point isn't it because they're after the retail market and actually it's much easier to sell it to the retail market because i know that if i went to a big corporate investor an institutional investor and i offered to you know borrow money for four years they would say uh, in the case of brew dog six and a half absolutely not at all you know there's quite a lot of risk and we want to charge more um and, and in reality it's been told to me by quite a few people that the retail market is sometimes a bit more of a pushover in the sense that actually institutionally investors would absolutely not put up with some of the terms mm. that are being out, out there uh, and in fact uh, that's why they quite often use brands but it's also important to say that some of those brands that we mentioned they're perfectly good businesses and some of the bonds are actually not bad you, you, that's the point, point about bonds you have to look at every single bond you have to look at the TNCs you have to look at the, what the terms and conditions are you have to understand the brand and you have to do the same level of due diligence as in my opinion as you would buy in the shares well, that's very good advice. Judith, to bring you into this discussion, you wrote in FT Money not so long ago that mini bonds as a form of investment are on the rise. But do you think that investors are aware of the risks attached? I think in many cases they're not, because as you mentioned, David, these companies are going directly to the retail consumer, to the person in the street who isn't necessarily going to know the background to these. I spoke to several investors in secured energy bonds, which was a mini bond that actually collapsed. The money mysteriously ended up in an Australian company that subsequently went bust. 
And they were definitely not aware of the risks when they invested. They were attracted in by the headline interest rate. They didn't realise that this was unregulated, that it was in effect unsecured, that there was very little information available about the company behind it. And some of them indeed were in professions such as care worker, where there's no reason for you to really have that financial expertise. So that was something um, that I found very worrying. Well, certainly it's of interest to our readers why this area of the market isn't regulated if, as we've seen, it's so often aimed at consumers and advertised openly, for example, in tube stations. Well, that's a good point. I think one reason for this is that the government is keen to encourage investment in small businesses and they're also keen to encourage alternative finance, both of which can be great things. But the Financial Conduct Authority, that's the city regulator, has repeatedly reviewed the way that it's covering the sector and it is going to do so again. And they've told me that that will include mini bonds. So I wonder if they might at some point be prompted to reconsider and perhaps introduce some regulation for this sector. Thanks very much, Judith. Still to come on the show, FT Money has analysed data from all of the major UK pension providers to ascertain how drawdown has been revolutionised following April's pensions freedoms. But before that, my serious money column in FT Money this weekend has been inspired by a trip to the hairdressers. A school careers advisor once told me that hairdressing was a recession-proof business as people will always need to get their hair cut. Thankfully, I ignored her career advice and became a journalist instead, but a trip to my own crimper this week revealed this maxim is hardly true. She's just sold the lease on her salon to a men's barbers, and he can afford the higher rent as, unlike her, he can sustain a higher volume business, with men coming back for a repeat trim every two weeks, taking less time to cut their hair and require comparatively little capital outlay in terms of dyes and products. So seeing how a supposedly defensive business can get the chop got me thinking about defensive shares in general and how resilient their business models truly are. Still with us is David Stevenson. Now, David, your fans know you as the adventurous investor, but actually you've invested in various defensive funds Mm, over the years as well. Now, what would you characterise as a classic defensive share and how has that definition perhaps changed? over the years well i think investing is, is is prey to the same kind of fad for kind of labels as every every other form of life and so you hear the word defensive it means stocks like utilities stocks like uh probably tobacco companies mm-hmm. probably sit in that category and they're defensive because it, they they tend to move up and down by less than the market and they tend to have a kind of dividend backing not always but usually so some, kind some of, income stream yeah there. some income stream um the, the problem with it is is that it's become slightly overused because Sometimes it veers into quality. Quality stocks, Diageo, classic example, uh, the, the, the enormous consumer brands company. Unilever is probably another example. Um, they're quality stocks. Um, what that means is that they have defensive-like qualities, but also they quite often have a very strong balance sheet. They have a big motor competitive advantage, you know, and it's very difficult. Warren Buffett loves buying quality stocks. Now, quality stocks are not the same as defensive stocks, um, and that's an important distinction. And a lot of institutions love quality stocks, so Diageo and Unilever shares are very highly overvalued. They certainly are. Uh, they are. Uh, whereas actually most utility companies are quite lowly valued, very high dividend yield, and they're not they're usually not valued much above book value. So if we accept that term, that, that labeling that's going on, um, it, it is interesting that uh, people do like both sets of stocks, but for slightly different reasons. Most wealth managers, for instance, love quality stocks, uh, full of their portfolios. 
a lot of income orientated portfolio managers love utility stocks because it gives them a steady income. And but the, the, the reality is both of them have done fairly well in the recent spike in volatility. It all as less less worse than the wider market, I should say. But when it comes to business models within the sector, like mm. take an area like the supermarkets. Now at yeah. one point they would have been considered um, a defensive stock, certainly when the financial crisis yeah, first bit. Yeah. People thought, well, we still have to go to Tesco's or Sainsbury's to buy all mm. of our shopping, um, and they were considered to be quite resilient areas but then obviously we know what's the happened rise of since our friendly then Germans. i know the german invasion <laughs> <laughs> of, of aldi and little but also um, the wider consumer trend yeah. away from shopping in giant hypermarkets to doing a local top-up shop um in smaller stores um weekly which has really hammered um yeah, the outlay absolutely. that they've had to spend on these big stores so um, i mean that's how the supermarket sector has has been disrupted but are there any other examples that you can think of in the defensive realm um well actually you know there's been worries even about tobacco actually um it's a bit, so the tobacco companies results have held up remarkably well but there's it's never quite gone away that people are worried that with the increasing you know regulation they're subject to the advertising bans and increasingly they're under targeted in the third world markets you're beginning to see more and more kind of cynics and skeptics break cover and say actually you know even the boring old tobacco companies could be under attack um we haven't quite seen that in evidential terms yet they've actually done they've held up fairly well possibly a, a measure to a measure of the degree to which their clients are addicted um but um utility stocks again utility stocks have fallen out of favor a lot in america and that's again from a structural change that you've you've sort of in, you've sort of implied here with supermarkets um and the structural change there is is that the regulators have turned around and said well we actually want you to have a lower return on capital mm. and they've said well actually you've been ripping customers off yeah and we'd rather you actually get smaller profits and, and, and arguably um it, it, you could have seen that if labor had come into par- power with um under ed Miliband's uh, uh, arguments about freezing the price that would have been a direct impact on a lot of defensive orientated stocks like SSE, um, Scotia mm. Southern Energy, which I happen to own. You know, I can't say most SSE shareholders were probably not particularly enthused by the prospect of having their energy prices freeze because they wouldn't make profit. Now, that didn't happen. But actually, it has been happening anyway, though, that the utility yes. model has been changing. Mm. And there is a lot of pressure on them now across the board from the regulators to, to, to lower their kind of return on equity. And that has, we, we see the most direct effect of that, actually, not in the UK, but in America, where in individual states, regulators have got really tough on utilities. And utility stocks in America are very popular with ordinary investors. They love it. They're defensive. They're income orientated. But the regulators got tough in some states and said, no, actually, you're going to charge a hell of a lot less in proportional terms. And a lot of utility stocks have never really had a bounce back in the last three or four years in America. And they've been serial underperformers in a really quite major way. Even Warren Buffett, um, he's been buying utility stocks because he thinks there's good value in them. And again, we go back to the issue about labels. When does a defensive become good value? Um, mm. So do you know what I mean? So when the, the, all these companies slip around between these various categories, quality, defensive, value. And, and Tesco's is another classic example. I know a couple of very good value investors who would never have touched Tesco's a few years ago because they thought it was richly priced and expensive. Um, now they're all buying The Tesco. yellow sticker has been applied. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I suppose the other issue we've also got to disentangle from the defensive debate is, is the UK debate, the UK-focused debate. So That's what, a good point. So what we're talking really about here is that some, some defensive companies have done a lot better in the last few months. Uh, so here's a classic example. Um, I, I look at a lot of index stats, and um, there's a bunch of guys over at Society Generale 
now who look at all the indices and they look at all the different indices. And if you look at something like the FTSE 100 or the MSCI World, big benchmark indices, there are usually different versions of these indices. And they're all sorts of things, high growth, small cap, all that kind of stuff. But one of them's out there is a thing called minimum or low volatility. It's a complicated term. All it means is they don't bounce around very much. Mm. And they are, by and large, defensive stocks. And to use one frame of reference, at one point, the MSCI world or the FTSE 100 was down 9% over a month. Uh, The average uh, low vol version of that was down 2%. But interestingly, UK small caps were down 2% as well. Uh, Now, that's surely not right because small caps, they're much riskier. You know, they're much scarier. But the reality of it is what we've seen in the last month is a flight from anything to do with China, emerging markets or international trade. But if you're UK focused, like a lot of small caps are, and quite a lot of defensive stocks are UK focused, they've actually done better than the market because the UK economy is clearly holding up. So look, China may be falling, falling over and exporters to China will have a hard time. But actually, UK focused stocks are actually not doing too badly because actually the UK economy is okay. Well, you could say they're doubly, doubly well insulated. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks very much. That Pleasure. was David Stevenson, the FT's adventurous investor, and you can read um, David's column in this week's edition of FT Money. Before our final item, a reminder that you can read this week's FT Money as part of the Weekend FT, widely available on both Saturday and Sunday, or read us online, ft.com slash money, and follow us on Twitter, at FT Money. As we approach the six-month anniversary of pension freedoms, the popularity of drawdown investments has unsurprisingly grown. FT Money Pensions correspondent Joe Cumbo has been crunching data from all of the major pension providers to see how the landscape has changed since April. This is particularly pertinent following stock market volatility in China, which subsequently spread around the world, as drawdown is obviously a riskier route for pension savers than the certainty that an annuity would have provided. Now, Joe's findings, which will be published in FT Money in full this weekend, show that though drawdown products were designed for more sophisticated investors with substantial savings, they are now entering the mainstream, albeit with some problems attached. So, Joe, what are the main trends and concerns that you found out about in your research? I started looking into this market because, as you highlighted, um, drawdown was a product up until about 18 months ago, which was a niche product, and it was really something that you got into if you were wealthy, if you had about £200,000, good enough asset base to withstand any stock market swings and and gyrations and you could sleep through it basically, not panic if things were moving in the market. Freedoms have transformed what drawdown is um, completely. Now people don't have to buy an annuity. There's a a bigger attraction. Drawdown has reinvented itself as a mass market product. Uh, In 2013, before the the freedoms were announced, only 20,000 drawdown policies were sold. But that uh, has more than doubled in 2014 as people move into drawdown. And they're moving in because providers are reducing the minimum fund sizes uh, to allow them in. So it's moving into the into the mass market now. So 200,000 you may have needed um, beforehand. Yes. But what, what's the kind of minimum pot okay. size now? Out of, out of the dozen or so providers who responded to the survey, I asked them to tell me a few things about their, their clients, what the changes they'd made in response to the freedoms. The majority of them had lowered their minimum fund sizes to thirty thousand pounds, which is about to, that's to capture the average pension pot, really. Uh, and and in many cases that had dropped 
to £10,000, so much lower, and some firms had even scrapped minimum fund requirements uh, for existing customers. So a lot of the people coming in who've really bumped up the numbers of of drawdown um, products being sold are going to be smaller investors. They're going to be people who probably don't have investment experience. And let's not forget that for most people, they would have built up their retirement pots in the workplace in default funds and they wouldn't be engaged. They're not investment managers. They won't have investment experience. But the market is now moving. Drawdown is moving into the space to capture interest in people who aren't necessarily having investment experience, but interested in moving into drawdown. So what are the risks for these smaller investors? Aside from maybe being unnerved by the gyrating markets, as as you've said, they also might not be very savvy about spotting what's a high fee and what isn't. Well, my survey uh, has, has a snapshot of how the market has moved and it's moving really fast from the old world of being targeting these wealthier investors who might have advisors to the mass market. And what I've found is that the old charging structures, which suit and more suited to wealthy investors, are still in place, and that investors with smaller funds are really at risk if they get, um, if they stumble into a, um, a scheme or a, um, a drawdown product with these with these structures which are more suited to high funds, so they'll get penalised. For example, um, what I found was that the charging structures for many providers will give discounts to bigger funds so that the market isn't really geared up for smaller funds. Even like though the, the fees will kind of decrease on a sliding decrease, scale yes, the more sliding, money you have. Yes, that's right. So the market is still geared up for bigger funds, so smaller funds are subsidising, in effect, the bigger funds. Um, and also the charging structures are typically, um, you'll see an AMC, which is the headline rate. And beyond that, there will be a raft of charges, including transfer in fees, admin fees, setup charges, all that. And if they're flat fees, those kind of charges can disproportionately hurt a smaller fund than a than a bigger fund, yeah, which can absorb a bigger ratio. Yeah. So you've got saved up. some some providers have changed their models to more percentage based fees that are all all in. So a total cost charge, for example, Standard Life has done that. They've said very clearly, we want to be mass market. This is going to be sensitive to, to pot size, etc. But many other um, providers in the survey are still operating these these uh, charging structures which are suited to bigger funds and and that's fine because perhaps we do need choice in this market but what I've uncovered after going through the process of trying to gather this information it's completely complex to to get all this information and so nigh impossible to compare product propositions because they're all different they use different terms so I mean from anyone starting out from scratch trying to compare what might be good uh, it's very difficult, but it shouldn't just be about cost, Claire, because as the market has uh, gyrations have shown us re- recently that if you're getting into the stock market, you can get your fingers burnt really quickly. And if you're an investor who isn't sure, doesn't have much experience, you don't know about your capacity for loss or what your objectives are, you could get burnt. And let's not forget it's your if it's re- your retirement fund and you're not putting any more money in in it as you go on, your capacity for loss is going to be much smaller than had you done this when you were in your 30s and still in a job. Well, lots to think about there and some very interesting um, research for us to pour over in FT Weekend. Um, thanks very much, Joe Cumbo, the FT's pensions correspondent.
We'd love to know what you think about pensions drawdown, the death of defensives, or about money matters more generally. You can get in touch with us via email. Our address is money at ft.com, or you can tweet us at ftmoney. And you can leave comments at the foot of individual articles on our website at ft.com slash money. There's just time to tell you what else is in this weekend's edition. We reveal the taxpayers who are a thorn in the side of HMRC, and we probe the city regulators' softening attitude to equity release products. Plus, we've shared tips from our sister publication, The Investor's Chronicle, and the latest director's deals. The Money Show will be back next week, but for now, it's goodbye from me, David, Judith and Joe. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.